We speak frequently of our seven principles. You'll find them in the back page of your order of service. But we rarely speak of our the six sources of our living tradition. Um, you'll find them uh, in, in, in lots of places, um, in your hymnals and online. And, and I want to reference them today. And so I've, I've pulled three of them because it, it, they tie directly to this theme of of applying our own reason to find truth. The three that I, I, I pulled are the direct experience of that transcending mystery of wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. And the emphasis here, direct experience, your experience, your perspective is meaningful. Words and deeds of prophetic men, women and men which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. I'll be reading to you today from the text of a prophetic man. Humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit, all of which contained in today's text. Today, that prophetic man I'm going to read to you from, uh, his name is William Ellery Channing. And he was a Unitarian leader over 200 years ago. And he counseled us in the most inspiring words I have ever read to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warned us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. The man was William Ellery Channing, and his remarks were made at the ordination of a new minister named Jared Sparks, at the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore. Now, the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore still exists. The name is a little different, and it's a Unitarian Universalist church now, and it is uh, the church where Reverend John Manuel and Phyllis Hubble are members and ministers emeritus. They preached from the very same pulpit that this sermon that I'm going to share with you today was, was preached in 1819. Um, Jared Sparks, the ordination uh, candidate at the, of the day, uh, was was the very first minister at that church. It was a new church at the time. And rather than make up my own words, uh, there's actually this, this speech is so uh, prominent in Unitarian Universalist history that it's um, it's described on the UUA website. Channing preached about a benevolent, loving God who had endowed humanity with innate goodness, rationality, and the wisdom to discern between good and evil. In a sermon delivered at the ordination of Jared Sparks in 1819 at the New Liberal Church in Baltimore, Maryland, Channing decided to snatch the label of Unitarian from those who would degrade it and to claim it proudly as his own. His address, Unitarian Christianity, stands as a hallmark of Unitarian history. The Baltimore Sermon, as it became known, gave the Unitarians a platform and a spokesman. It placed them for the first time on the offensive in relation to the Orthodox. It was very probably the most important Unitarian sermon ever preached anywhere. These are not my words. In the hour and a half long address, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Channing took on two tasks. First, he established reason as a valid and necessary as valid and necessary for the interpretation of Scripture, not only as the basis for religious belief but as an aid to revelation for reading and understanding the meaning of the Bible. It's long been an ambition of mine to bring this sermon to this church. 
partly because it's an important connection to the history of our faith, but partly because the words are so relevant today and because I've never encountered such a stirring defense of the use of logic and reason in the way that we conceive it as we build our faith. We are a seeker's faith. We are a seeker's church. And every week we cite in our covenant that we are here to seek the truth in freedom. And that's what this sermon is about. Now, it was written and given 200 years ago, so the text is a little dense. So, um, you know, but I, but I wanted to preach it as written. I didn't want to, to morph uh, Channing's words. So, Tamar has agreed to translate as I go along. <clears throat> the peculiar circumstances of this occasion not only justify, but seem to demand a departure from the course generally followed by preachers at the introduction of a brother into sacred office. It is usual to speak of the nature, design, duties, and advantages of the Christian ministry. And on these topics, I should now be happy to insist. Uh, there's a script for ordinations, and normally I'd follow it. Did I not remember that a minister is to be given this day to a religious society whose peculiarities of opinion have drawn upon them much remark, and may I not add, much reproach? But we Unitarians have been taking a lot of heat lately, and I have had enough of that. Many good minds, many sincere Christians, I am aware, are apprehensive that the solemnities of this day are to give a degree of influence to principles which they deem false and injurious. A whole lot of people think we're not real Christians. The fears and anxieties of such men I respect. And believing that they are grounded in part on mistake, I have thought it my duty to lay before you, as clearly as I can, some of the distinguishing opinions of that class of Christians in our country who are known to sympathize with this religious society. They're wrong, and I'm going to explain why in simple terms. This authority, which we give to the scriptures, is a reason we conceive for studying them with peculiar care and for inquiring anxiously into the principles of interpretation by which their true meaning may be ascertained. Because the Bible is very important, we must work really hard to understand it. We are particularly accused of making an unwarrantable use of reason in the interpretation of Scripture. We are said to exalt reason above revelation, to prefer our own wisdom to God's. In seeking to understand it, some people think we're just making up its meaning to suit ourselves. Our leading principle in interpreting scripture is this, that the Bible is a book written for men and women, in the language of men and women, and that its meaning is to be sought in the same manner as that of other books. God may have inspired the Bible, but people put it into print. We believe that God, when he speaks to the human race, conforms, if we may say so, to the established rules of speaking and writing. How else would the scriptures avail us more than if communicated in an unknown tongue? God has to explain the meaning of life to us with the same words we use for appliance assembly instructions. Now, all books and all conversation require in the reader or hearer the constant exercise of reason, 
or their true import is only to be ordained by continual comparison and inference. Do you read a book or talk to each other without thinking? No, you do not. Human language, you well know, admits various interpretations. Every word and every sentence must be modified and explained according to the subject which is discussed, according to the purposes, feelings, and circumstances, and principles of the writer, and according to the genius and idioms of the language which he uses. Now, here what I'm going to do is actually show you a video. A little bit, some of the language is a little crude, but I'm going to ask you to, for a little forbearance on that because it is the best example I have ever seen of a single phrase having so many meetings, meanings, which illustrates Channing's point that just because a sentence may be clear to you does not mean that it means the same thing to every reader. This is from a movie called Donnie Brasco. Hey, can I ask you something? What's we got about? What is it? We got about it's like uh, if you agree with someone, huh? Like Rockwell Welch is one great piece of ass But then, if you disagree, like Lincoln is better than Cadillac, forget about it. Huh? But then, it's also like if someone is the greatest thing on the world, you don't have to forget about it. But it's also like saying go to hell, too. And you know, like, uh, if, well, you got a one effect on Moses, forget about it. So if you think the Bible just has one meaning, forget about it. Were the Bible written in a language and style of its own, and did it consist of words which admit but a single sense, and of sentences wholly detached from each other, there would be no place for the principles now laid down. We could not reason about it, as about other writings, but such a book would be of little worth, and perhaps of all the books, the scriptures correspond least to this description. Maybe, if the Bible were written in simpler terms, we wouldn't need to use reason to interpret it. But it's not. The word of God hears the stamp of the same hand which we see in his works. It has infinite connections and dependencies. Every proposition is linked with others and is to be compared with others that its full and precise import may be understood. Nothing stands alone. The New Testament is built on the Old. The Christian dispensation is a continuation of the Jewish, and the complexion of a vast scheme of providence requiring great extent of view in the reader. Look at the world around us. It is complex. It has a long history. The scriptures apply to this world, so that complexity and history apply to the scriptures. Still more, the Bible treats of subjects on which we receive ideas from other sources besides itself, such as subjects such as nature, the passions, relations, and duties of man, and it expects us to restrain and modify its language by the known truths which observation and experience furnish on these topics. 
scriptures should be consistent with what we know about life and each other. We profess not to know a book which demands a more frequent exercise of reason than the Bible. I'm going to double down now. Its language is, figura- is singularly glowing, bold, and figurative, demanding more frequent departures from the literal sense than that of our own age and country, and consequently demanding more continual exercise of judgment. We find, too, that some of these books are strongly marked by the genius and character of their respective writers, that the Holy Spirit did not so guide the apostles as to suspend the peculiarities of their minds. The apostles were not simply God's stenographers. With these views of the Bible, we feel it our bounden duty to exercise our reason upon it perpetually, to compare, to infer, to look beyond the letter of the Spirit, to seek in the nature of the subject and the aim of the writer his true meaning, and, in general, to make use of what is known for explaining what is difficult and for discovering new truths. Need I descend to particulars to prove that the scriptures demand the exercise of reason? Do you really need me to spell it out for you? You really do need me to spell it out for you. Take, for example, that style in which they generally speak of God, and observe how habitually they apply to him human passions and organs. Recollect the declarations of Christ, that he came not to send peace but a sword, that unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life in us, that we must hate father and mother and pluck out the right eye and a vast number of passages equally bold and unlimited. The line for flesh and blood forms on the right. Father's Day is an apocasy. The eye-plucking station is over by the window. In other words, we believe that God never contradicts in one part of Scripture what he teaches in another, and never contradicts in Revelation what he teaches in his works and providence. And therefore, we distrust every interpretation which, after deliberate attention, seems repugnant to any established truth. Without these principles of interpretation we frankly acknowledge that we cannot defend the divine authority of the scriptures. Deny us this latitude, and we must abandon this book to its enemies. The Bible, unscrutinized, is worthless. We do not announce these principles as original or peculiar to ourselves. All Christians occasionally adopt them, not accepting those who most vehemently decry them when they happen to menace some favorite article of their creed. Absolutely everybody picks and chooses which parts of the Bible they like, ignoring the rest. All Christians are compelled to use them in their controversies with infidels. All sects employ them in their warfare with one another. All willingly avail themselves of reason when it can be pressed into the service of their own party and only complain of it when its weapons wound themselves, none more frequently than those with whom we differ. It is astonishing. None reason more frequently than those with whom we differ. (laughs) Just hit the left arrow button on the keyboard. It should work. 
No. Yeah, there we go. It is astonishing what a fabric they rear from a few slight hints about the fall of our first parents. How ingeniously they extract from detached passages mysterious doctrines about divine nature. We do not blame them for reasoning so abundantly, but for violating the fundamental rules of reasoning, for sacrificing the plain to the obscure, and the general strain of Scripture to a scanty number of insulated texts. We strongly object to the contemptuous manner in which human reason is often spoken of by our adversaries, because it leads, we believe, to universal skepticism. If reason be so dreadfully darkened by the fall that its most decisive judgments on religion are unworthy of trust, then Christianity, and even natural theology, must be abandoned. For the existence and veracity of God and the divine original of Christianity are conclusions of reason and must stand or fall with it. If revelation be at war with this faculty, it subverts itself, for the great question of its truth is left by God to be decided at the bar of reason. It is worthy of remark how nearly the bigot and the skeptic approach, both would annihilate our confidence in our faculties and both throw doubt and confusion over every truth. Are these people seriously suggesting we just stop trying to understand? We indeed grant that the use of religion, use of reason in religion is accompanied with danger. But we ask any honest man to look back on the history of the church and say, whether the renunciation of it be still not more dangerous. Besides, it is a plain fact that men reason as erroneously on all subjects as on religion. Who does not know the wild and groundless theories which have been framed in physical and political science? Yes, people have followed reason into error in religion, just as with everything else. But whoever supposed that we must, be, we must cease to exercise reason on nature and society because men have erred for ages in explaining them? But does that mean we stop trying? The worst errors, after all, having sprung up in that church which prescribes reason and demands from its members implicit faith. Need I remind you of doomsday cults? Say what we may, God has given us a rational nature and will call us to account for it. We may let it sleep, but we do so at our peril. Revelation is addressed to us as rational beings. We may wish in our sloth that God had given us a system, demand of comparing, limiting, and inferring, but such a system would be at variance with the whole character of our present existence, and it is the part of wisdom to take revelation as it is given to us and to interpret it by the help of those faculties, which it everywhere supposes and on which founded. It would be easier if we actually didn't have to think. To the views now given, an objection is commonly urged from the character of God. We are told that God being infinitely wiser than men, his discoveries will surpass reason. In a revelation from such a teacher, we ought to expect propositions which we cannot reconcile with one another, 
which may seem to contradict established truths. And it may come to us not to question or explain them away, but to believe and adore and to submit our weak and carnal reason to the divine word. The real meaning is that they want us to take their explanations and swallow them whole. To this objection, we have two short answers. We say, first, that it is impossible that a teacher of infinite wisdom should expose those whom he would teach to infinite error. But if we once admit that propositions, which in their literal sense appear plainly repugnant to each other or to any known truth, are still to be literally understood and received, what possible limit can we set to the belief of contradictions? What shelter have we from the wildest fanaticism, which can always quote passages that in their literal and obvious sense give support to its extravagances? God obviously didn't intend to give us wrong information, so why would we accept what we can clearly see is wrong? How can the Protestant escape from transubstantiation, a doctrine most clearly taught us, if the submission of reason now contended for be a duty? How did the Protestants ditch Catholicism? By reinterpreting the Bible. How can we even hold fast the truth of revelation? For if one apparent contradiction may be true, so may another. And the proposition that Christianity is false, though involving inconsistency, may still be a verity. I'm just going to roll now. We answer again that if God be infinitely wise, he cannot sport with the understandings of his creatures. A wise teacher discovers his wisdom in adapting himself to the capacities of his pupils, not in perplexing them with what is unintelligible, not in distressing them with apparent contradictions, not in filling them with skeptical distrust of their own powers. An infinitely wise teacher who knows the precise extent of our minds and the best method of enlightening them will surpass all other instructors in bringing down truth to our apprehension and showing its loveliness and harmony. We ought indeed to expect occasional obscurity in such a book as the Bible, which was written for past and future ages as well as for the present. But God's wisdom is a pledge that whatever is necessary for us and necessary for salvation is revealed too plainly to be mistaken and too consistently to be questioned by a sound and upright mind. It is not the mark of wisdom to use an unintelligible phraseology, to communicate what is above our capacities, to confuse and unsettle the intellect by appearances of contradiction. We honor our heavenly teacher too much to ascribe to him such a revelation. A revelation is a gift of light. It cannot thicken our darkness and multiply our perplexities. Channing then goes on for a long time about the nature and divinity of Jesus and the biblical defense of Unitarianism versus Trinitarianism, but I'm going to, it's a good read, but I'm going to skip that part. It's a topic for another sermon. I need not express to you our views on the subject of the benevolent virtues. We attach such importance to these that we are sometimes reproached with exalting them above piety. We regard the spirit of love charity, meekness, forgiveness, liberality, and beneficence as the badge and distinction of Christians, as the brightest image we can bear of God, as the best proof of piety.
On this subject, I need not and cannot enlarge. But there is one branch of benevolence which I ought not to pass over in silence, because I think that we conceive of it more highly and justly than many of our brethren. I refer to the duty of candor, charitable judgment, judgment, especially those towards those who differ in religious opinion. We think that nothing have Christians so widely departed from in their religion as this in particular. We read with astonishment and horror the history of the church. And sometimes, when we look back on the fires of persecution and on the zeal of Christians in building up walls of separation and in giving up one another to perdition, we feel as if we were reading the records of an infernal rather than a heavenly kingdom. As an enemy to every religion, and oh, excuse me, an enemy to every religion, if asked to describe a Christian, would, with some show of reason, depict him as an idolater of his own distinguishing opinions, covered with badges of party, shutting his eyes to the virtues and his ears on the arguments of his opponents, arrogating all excellence to his own sect and all saving power to his own creed, sheltering under the name of pious zeal the love of domination, the conceit of infallibility, and the spirit of intolerance and trampling on men's rights under the pretense of saving their souls, and women's rights too. We can hardly conceive of a plainer obligation on beings of our frail and fallible nature who are instructed in the duty of candid judgment than to abstain from condemning men and women of apparent conscientiousness and sincerity who are chargeable with no crime but that of differing from us in the interpretation of scriptures and differing too on topics of great and acknowledged obscurity. We are astonished at the hardihood of those who with Christ's warnings sounding in their ears, take on them the responsibility for making creeds for his church and cast out professors of virtuous lives for imagined errors, for the guilt <coughs> of thinking for themselves. We find that on no subject have men and even good men engrafted so many strange conceits, wild theories, and fictions of fancy as on religion. And remembering as we do that we ourselves are sharers of the common frailty, we dare not assume infallibility on the treatment of our fellow Christians or encourage in common Christians who have little time for investigation the habit of denouncing and condemning other denominations, perhaps more enlightened and virtuous than their own. Charity, forbearance, a delight in the virtues of different sects, a backwardness to censure and condemn, these are virtues which, however poorly practiced by us, we admire and recommend. And we would rather join ourselves to the church in which they abound than to any other communion however elated with the belief of its own orthodoxy, however strict in guarding its creed, however burning with zeal against imagined error. To all who hear me, I would say with the apostle, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Do not, brethren, shrink from the duty of searching God's word for yourselves, though the hear, through, the, through fear of human censure and denunciation, do not think that you may innocently follow the opinions which prevail around you 
without investigation on the ground, that Christianity is so now purified from errors as to need no laborious research, there is much reason to believe that Christianity is at this moment dishonored by gross and cherished corruptions. If you remember the darkness which hung over the gospel for ages, if you consider the impure union which still subsists in almost every Christian country between the church and state, and which enlists men's selfishness and ambition on the side of established error, if you recollect in what degree the spirit of intolerance has checked free inquiry, not only before but since the Reformation, you will see that Christianity cannot have freed itself from all the human investigations which disfigured it under the papal tyranny. No, much stubble is yet to be burned, much rubbish to be removed, many gaudy decorations which a false taste has hung around Christianity must be swept away, and the earth-born fogs which have long shrouded it must be scattered before this divine fabric will rise before us in its native and awful majesty, in its harmonious proportions, in its mild and celestial splendors. Our earnest prayer to God is that he will overturn and overturn and overturn the strongholds of spiritual usurpation until he shall come whose right it is to rule the minds of men. And that the conspiracy of ages against the liberty of Christians may be brought to an end. That the servile assent so long yielded to human creeds may give place to honest and devout inquiry into the scriptures. And that Christianity, thus purified from error, may put forth its almighty energy and prove itself by its ennobling influence on the mind to be indeed the power of God unto salvation. We must keep reinterpreting to shake off old assumptions, to incorporate new knowledge, to dig and dig and dig until we find what we are really meant to know. It is only by seeking constantly, by applying our knowledge and logic and understanding to these texts that we will eventually understand their true meaning. So that was Channing 198 years ago. Thank you very much for allowing me to share this this morning.